This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. All right, welcome to the program, and I have to confess something here. Uh, For the first time since we started this program six years ago, yours truly took more than three weeks off. That means that the last three programs, anyway, were entirely pre-produced. In fact, the last two shows, I just turned it over to Mr. McMillan because I wasn't sure what he was going to do. And by the way, what did you do? Encore presentations of Radio Parallax. That's a nice ring to it. And, and who, who'd, you, who'd you air, by the way? Vincent Bugliosi and Mr. Prothro. Dr. Prothro, the evolution dude. That's right. Okay, well, a couple of good shows. <laughs> Uh, not that I'm a, a biased observer or anything. But at any rate, what that means is, uh, well, I guess I should tell you where I went. I, I slunk off to go look at an eclipse. There was an eclipse on August 1st. It was tracking across the northern, I think, Baffin Island, across the North Atlantic, across the, the pole almost, and then down across Russia through Mongolia and China. I decided to make my way to Siberia to see this event. And I'm happy to report, to make a long story short, that I did make it to the Altai Mountains. And, and of course, I realize Americans, uh, not necessarily our listeners here, of course, uh, you, you, you good people, but Americans in general tend to be geographically challenged. So to point out where I was on, on the world map, I recommend that you look where Mongolia almost touches Kazakhstan, but doesn't quite. There's, in fact, a little teeny gap where China butts up against Russia, and I was just north of that gap in the Altai Mountains. This is not an area a lot of Americans get to. In fact, from the time I left Moscow to the time I got back into Moscow, I did not meet another American. And really, I was watching later on in the trip some BBC, uh, you know, news reports on weather, I noticed, this, of all the areas on Earth except possibly Antarctica, this is the area that gets ignored. And I'm guessing just because people from this part of the world, uh, you know, not being near an ocean particularly, kind of, I guess, stay where they were. They didn't get on boats. They didn't come to America. And no, I don't count Borat. Although I did meet some people later in the trip on a little ferry ride in, in, in Oslo, and I asked them where they were from, and they said Kazakhstan. Now, a couple of them looked as though they came from Japan. A couple of them looked as though they came from Mongolia. Uh, One of them looked like Joseph Stalin, and one lady looked very much like she was Russian. But none of them looked like Sasha Baron Cohn. But at any rate, um, I've got a lot of catching up to do. A lot has happened in the last last four weeks while uh, I was not not around, and so I'd like to recap some of those. (laughs) If by no other means than uh, giving you two good week four, bad week four, and ugly week fours in the upcoming section. And I, I must confess to being a little out of the loop, a little rusty, a little out of sync. And so I think what I'm planning to do for the rest of this program, at least in our second and third segments today, is, is try and act as a reporter and, and give you some of the benefit of the observations that I've had a, the privilege to make in the past few weeks. And, and I want to tell you, Russia has learned in a hurry about capitalism. The change between, I, I, between my last visit, which was in the last six months of the old USSR, and now are stunning, and, and, and stunning 
for the better, which is, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be able to say that about at least some place on Earth, because usually you go someplace 17 years later and it hasn't gotten better. Or at least that's been my sad experience. But happily, Russia is very much an exception to this. And um, when I was in the Altai Mountains of Siberia, something like 30 miles south of the only, you know, town there, Gorno-Altaisk, I'm in this little town of Chemal, and I noticed that they have a bank. And the bank has an ATM. And I can walk right up to it, put in my ATM card, and pull out Russian rubles. The world has changed. And I think that's a remarkable change for the better. Judging by what I saw in uh, Latvia and Estonia, uh, well, good things are happening there too, but uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's, let's see if we can't start this program uh, as we uh, normally do with On This Date in History. Our date today is August 21st, and it was on August 21st in 1841 that John Hampton of New Orleans, Louisiana, patented Venetian blinds. Whether he based these on something he saw in Venice or whether what, what Venice has to do with the blinds, well, we, we don't know. If you know, send us an email at info at radioparallax.com. On this date in 1911, described as what is perhaps the most brazen art theft of all time, Vincenzo Perugia walked into the Louvre in Paris, headed straight for the Mona Lisa, removed it from the wall, hid it beneath his clothes, and escaped. Painting was then missing for a couple of years, although Perugia was finally arrested in November of 1913 when he attempted to retrieve a hefty ransom. The Mona Lisa was unharmed. On this date in 1944, representatives from the United States, the Soviet Union, Great Britain, and China met at Georgetown in Washington, D.C. to formulate the principles of an organization that would provide collective security on a worldwide basis. That would be the United Nations which kicked off the next year in San Francisco. And on this date in 1959, Hawaii became the 50th United States of America. Our quote of the day comes from Circuit City spokesman Jim Babb who commented about the chain's decision to temporarily ban Mad Magazine because it contained a Sucker City spoof ad. He said, We are creating a cross-departmental task force to study the importance of humor in the corporate workplace. And of course, Radio Parallax wishes him well with that. And uh, our quip of the week comes from John Ficara, currently the editor of Mad Magazine, who received Jim Babb's statement uh, and a coupon offer for a Nintendo Wii. He said, We accept their apology, but hold out hope that their gesture of a $20 gift card is only an opening offer. Our bonus quote comes from a Walmart supervisor, who noted that the retail giant was apparently warning its managers that a Democratic president would support unionized workers. Said the supervisor, I'm not a stupid person. They're telling me how to vote. Although we imagine if Hillary had gotten the nomination, Walmart would be quite fond of their former little lady. Our joke of the day, and I guess it'll be maybe 15 jokes of the day, comes from the current issue of Radar Magazine. And by the way, someone wrote a while back, I think it might have been Matt, but I'm not sure, asking about what that smart-ass magazine that we quote so often was named. 
I'm not sure I sent an email back, but in case I in case I didn't, it is radar, which is good for a laugh now and again, and we hope starting in a couple seconds, because their current issue, the Radar 100, was 100 signs your college isn't prestigious. All right, I think I'm going to do 15 of these. Top 10 signs your college isn't prestigious. How about courses offered in class, online, and drive through Another pretty good sign, your school advertises on urinal cakes. Signs your college isn't prestigious. Acceptance letters are sent to student's name or current resident. All right, another sign, the swim team's uniform is cutoffs. Another pretty reliable sign your college isn't prestigious. Commencement ceremony is a live feed from a better school's commencement ceremony. All right, here's a sign I think is especially telling. Student bookstore has curtained off adult section. All right, some more signs your college isn't prestigious. Valedictorian honor awarded to whoever fights his way to the podium first. Another good indication, you're the only college with and grill after its name. All right, also, and this can't be a good sign, faculty are permitted slash encouraged to carry tasers. All right, some more signs your college isn't necessarily up to scratch. It doesn't have a campus radio station, but it does have its own CB radio handle. Another bad sign, your professor of ethics is wearing a house arrest anklet. All right, let's do four, four more here. Signs your college is not necessarily very uh, prestigious. The first time you brought a laptop to class, the other students thought you were a time traveler from the future. Also, you discovered you were eligible to graduate via a scratch-off ticket. All right, one thing that has to be, surely has to be a bad sign, your main rival is Trump University. And finally, you know it's a bad sign when your school has a no shoes, no shirt, no diploma policy. Anyway, I'm anxious to tell you about uh, about uh, my adventures and misadventures in Asia and Europe. But on this unique occasion, I have no less than four copies of The Week magazine in front of me, and so I think we'll do two each from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. All right, sometime during the last month, it was a good week for the nine-year-old girl formerly known as Tallulah Does the Hula from Hawaii when a judge in New Zealand ordered her legally renamed, citing the, quote, very poor judgment, unquote, of her parents. Now, if only somebody can rescue Nicolas Cage's son, Cal L. But at any rate, also during the last month, it apparently was a good week for being prepared for all circumstances. After Jeff Nichols of San Diego lifted his wife's wedding gown to retrieve her garter so he could toss it to the crowd in traditional fashion, only to find a thigh holster and a loaded revolver. Oops, wrong leg, Nichols said. His bride is a police officer. And no, we're not sure why she was packing heat for her betrothal. 
All right. During the past week, it was apparently a bad week for the Olympic spirit. After the Spanish basketball team posed for a photo kneeling on a Chinese dragon and pulling back their facial skin to mimic Asian slanted eyes. Said one player, the gesture was affectionate. The Spanish team then beat the Chinese team 85 to 75 while being booed throughout the game. And it was also apparently a bad week for claustrophobia when it was revealed that a drunken British woman coming home from vacation in Greece tried to open the door of her chartered plane at 33,000 feet. Apparently she wanted to catch some fresh air, said police. All right, and sometime during the last month, it was a pretty ugly week for following the recipe. After British celebrity chef Anthony Worrell Thompson said in a magazine article that the weed henbane is great in salads. Thompson later had to admit that he had confused henbane with a different plant, one that does not cause convulsions, vomiting, and death. And finally, it was an ugly week sometime in the past month for consistency when a Kentucky woman was kicked out of a shopping mall for wearing a short dress that security guards called provocative. Kimberly Chem, age 20, had purchased the dress at the mall the day before. All right, and from the Only in America file, we have this one. A death row inmate in Ohio is filing a lawsuit claiming he's too fat to be executed. Apparently, Richard Cooey, age 41, is scheduled to die for the 1986 rape and murder of two women. But the 267-pound Cooney says his bulk makes his veins difficult to find, which could lessen the effect of the anesthetic administered prior to lethal injection. Said public defender Kelly Schneider, all the experts agree if the first drug doesn't work, the execution is going to be excruciating. Well, from a medical standpoint, I would say probably not. The potassium chloride, if it should leak, might sting for a relatively short period of time. And I can't resist adding, well, you should think about a thing like that before you set out to rape and murder now, shouldn't you? Oh, you know, before, I, before we close this segment, I think I forgot to do a statistic of the day. Here's one that sort of uh, attracted my eye after making uh, 11 flights in the past uh, month. According to the New York Times, over the course of his or her lifetime, the average American stands a 1 in 5,550 chance of dying in a plane crash, which does include small private planes, which does worsen the odds considerably. Whereas, your lifetime odds of dying in a car wreck, 1 in 247. And joining us, as he so often does, is America's foremost political comic, Will Durst. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I want to talk about the big athletic dealy thing that's going down in Beijing this week. They call them the Games of the 29th Olympiad, even though this is only going to be the 26th time that the Games themselves are actually played. Don't ask. It's a math thing. A couple of games there get called on account of Germans. And what amazes me is that the world's premier sporting event is happening for three weeks in a country where breathing itself is a challenging sport. A communist country where the designated free speech zones should be located next to insane asylums because anybody who would publicly protest in China is crazy. 
a country where the term hot dog isn't just a menu item, but it's also the ingredient listing. The trade-off to awarding the games to a country whose treatment of dissidents makes Guantanamo Bay look like the Nathan Lane musical comedy summer camp is that they said they were going to try to improve their human rights record. But the Chinese leaders treated that promise the same way that the Bush administration does Supreme Court decisions. Now, combine all this with the little-known fact that every year the host country of the Olympics gets to include its own event, and we come up with a little something that I like to call Wilderst's List of Possible New Events for the Chinese Olympics. Here we go. Synchronized Waterboarding The Barbed Wire High Hurdles The Tibetan Monk Toss the Starving Doberman Obstacle Course, the Korean Border Minefield Relay, and the number one possible new event for the Chinese Olympics, the Re-Education Spiky Bamboo Pit Leap. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Anyway, it's a great pleasure to have Will Durst on this program every week. And since we're running ahead of schedule today, I think I'm going to start uh, talking about the trip uh, before we go to break. And I must say, I'm not going to go chronologically on this necessarily, and I'm going to try and weave in things I discovered about what was happening back home by reading the International Herald and talking to people. But uh, I just want to start out with maybe one of the most amusing moments of the entire three weeks and change that I was gone. I guess this does require a bit of setup. I decided I wanted to see this eclipse, if possible, in the Altai Mountains. I've seen three of these things before, but I've never, I've never managed to get high enough in the mountains to see the Earth's shadow racing across uh, uh, the continent. It's coming at you at something like 3,000 miles an hour, and obviously if you can see, you know, dozens of miles off, then you got a chance to appreciate that, you know, that looming darkness. Plus, my research into the, you know, into the weather, such as it was, indicated that heading south toward the dry, uh, dry border with China and Mongolia was probably a better bet than hanging out out on the plains of Russia. Now, it turned out that the, uh, the shadow of this eclipse was going over Novosibirsk, which, uh, which I was surprised to discover is now the third largest city in Russia after Moscow and St. Petersburg. I'm not sure where it ranked in the old uh, old USSR with cities like Kiev and, and Minsk and, and Riga. But it is a big town, and I knew there'd be plenty of flights to it. Uh, there's you know many a day from Moscow, and I thought I'd work my way south from there, even though the general area that I wanted to go was about 600 kilometers away, which is you know roughly as far as it is from the Sacramento area to Los Angeles. My plan as it evolved was to fly to Novosibirsk from Moscow, and make my way to the smaller town of Bernal, which is still a pretty substantial city of about three or 400,000, and try and arrange from there transport up into the mountains. And by the way, if you're thinking about traveling to Russia, I would say do it, but I'll, I'll get to that in the second segment here. I, I'm not so much afraid of driving uh, in, in foreign countries, but, but you know, with the signs in Cyrillic and the number of traffic cops and cops in general, which, which, which Russia excels at, and the fact that, you know, I figured if they, if they caught wind of the fact that I was a tourist, you know, I was, I was going to get stopped and probably shaken down. More on that later. But anyway, when I was in Bernal, this is now two days before the eclipse. The eclipse is on Friday, and I'm there Wednesday morning trying to solve my transportation trouble. I'm traipsing around town with a list of car rental agencies, thinking that, uh, well, you know, I guess if I have to, I'll drive myself. 
and uh, armed with my Lonely Planet under the arm. And we're going to have to interview Tony Wheeler, the founder of Lonely Planet, on this program. They're just the all-time great guides. And if you go to go to a foreign country without one, I, I just you feel I feel naked. But uh, having read in the Lonely Planet about this travel agency uh, and several others in the town of Bernal, I stumbled across it while uh, heading for trying to find a car rental agency. At any rate, the good people in the Sputnik Altai Tourist Company sought to find me a rental car and informed me that, unfortunately, because of the eclipse, the last two available in the city had just been rented. I said, well, I still need to get to the Altai, so what do you propose? And they said, well, you need to get a car with a driver. I said, sounds good to me. And while huddling with one of the employees whose English was pretty good and one of the managers whose connections were pretty good, they kicked the idea around, made a couple phone calls, and then finally looked at me and the manager said, well, my husband could go. It turned out that Irina's husband, Sergei, was on vacation and apparently didn't have any plans for the weekend. Therefore, being a dutiful husband and a real trooper, Sergei was shanghaied into being my driver. Irina looked at me rather apologetically and said, you know, no English. He doesn't speak English. And I just laughed and said, well, after four days, he will speak more. And I will speak more Russian. It turned out that Sergei was a physician, so I was now being given a driver who was a medical doctor. See if you can arrange that next time you go to Hertz or Avis. But at any rate, we're in his Toyota, right-hand drive. I'm sitting in the left seat. We're tooling down the Russian highways past a couple of checkpoints and more or less paralleling the Ob River as it, uh, you know, goes towards its headwaters. And coming out of Sergei's CD player among his mixed bag of European and world music came the following. A teenage wedding and the old folks wished them well You could see that Pierre did truly love the mademoiselle So here we are dodging diesel trucks speeding past fields of Russian ryegrass listening to a great selection by the immortal Chuck Berry I, I laughed and turned to Sergey and said Chuck Berry he said he looks at me and nods like, of course, yes, Chuck Betty. Then he looked at me, swiveled his arms, said the name of something, said some sort of word in Russian, and then said, John Travolta. And I'm thinking to myself, is that the scene in that Quentin Tarantino movie that Travolta's doing the twist with Uma Thurman? Was that to You Never Can Tell? And the answer is, yes, it was. And here's the part that's what cracked me up. I couldn't remember the name of that movie to save my life, which is, of course, Pulp Fiction. But it was right in the tip of Sergei's tongue, at least whatever Russian name they gave the movie. And I just had to laugh at how international culture really has become. And although in some cases that, that may not be good, it is in the case of Chuck Berry. Anyway, you're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break. Pierre was waiting to the lovely mademoiselle. C'est la vie, c'est the old folks, both the show you never can tell. 